The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. Today we're going to be talking about health risks, investigating our environment. So do you know what a PCB is? No, it's not a printed circuit board. It stands for polychlorinated biphenyls. So what do PCBs have in common with radon, lead, and asbestos? Well, they're all toxic substances. In the United States, toxic substances are regulated by the U.S. Toxic Substances Control Act, TC, I'm sorry, TSCA, TSCA of 1976. This is a governmental agency that manages the importation, use, and disposal of these hazards to our health. So when there's negligence, the next step is often a legal action, and that's where private investigator Nancy Barber steps in. Nancy Barber specializes in investigating civil litigation matters that involve toxic torts, including asbestos, land use, and environment, as well as product liability and elder abuse. So to tell you a little bit about Nancy, she founded Glass Key Investigations in 1988. Licensed private investigator Nancy S. Barber, uh, in an unusual move, her firm was even awarded fees in a U.S. District Court public land use action after her firm donated her pro bono services to a plaintiff's action against the federal government. It's very unusual to have that happen. Nancy holds a Forensic Environmental Investigation Certification. She has a BA in Spanish, an MA, Master's in Latin American Studies, a Paralegal Certificate, and a Nursing Home Audubon. Um, I can't say um, that Budsman. word. Um, Budsman. Budsman. Thank you, Nancy. <laughs> Certification. She served as an instructor in an environmental law and paralegal training. She's an immediate past board chair and past president of the Council of International Investigators. She holds memberships in the California Association of Licensed Investigators, CALI, National Association of Legal Investigators, NALI, and National Council of Investigation Security Services, NCISS. So, Nancy, welcome, and thank you for helping me pronounce words. Oh, that's part of my job. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being on the show this morning. And just, you know, let's start out by talking about how you got into this business anyway. 
Well, I think that I could probably be viewed as the new wave of investigators in that uh, I don't come from a law enforcement background at all, but rather um, I was just uh, one of those people in the right place at the right time. Uh, I was in uh, a PhD program at UC Berkeley that I dropped out of, and I was casting about for something to do. I was always interested in history. That was uh, sort of my background. And by I just happened to luck into a position at a firm that was handling uh, toxic tort cases in asbestos litigation. And one of the things that I started out as is a paralegal, and I was thinking about going to law school. I was fascinated by the, the aspect of civil litigation and environmental investigations, but I got totally addicted to the concept of tracking down who done it. And in environmental and toxic tort cases, what that basically involves is a historical uh, research project. So I was a pig in mud, as you might say. I found a job I absolutely loved, and nobody else at the firm wanted to do this. And one of the aspects of the job that nobody seemed to enjoy that I just loved was interviewing um, people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s about what they did for a living where they worked and what uh, kinds of products they were working and what the component aspects of those products were that were subject to the lawsuit. So I suddenly fell into the most wonderful part of the world I could possibly find, which was being paid to do history assignments. Who knew? So that's how I got involved. So So tell us what a toxic tort is. Well, a toxic tort is a fancy-sounding word that's essentially uh, tort is just a wrongful act for which a civil action can be filed. And a toxic tort is basically any tort that involves uh, – it can be any substance, any component that causes a health problem. And that's kind of the most interesting part of the cases is figuring out what toxic substances are in an environment that contribute to – to uh, health problems, uh-huh. and that is tandem with the fact that um, frequently uh, exposure to a toxic substance is is uh, anomalous in that it's not as if you stick your hand in the flame and you get burned right away and you know you have an injury. Typically, a toxic tort ma- is filed by the manifestation of a, a health problem that can take, in the instance of asbestos, it can take any anywhere from 10 to 15 to 30 years to manifest itself. Mm-hmm. So you don't really you don't really know until the health problem arises exactly what caused that health problem. And in the case of for example cancer, there's an unusual, you know, it can be a combination. A good example of that is the synergistic effect between tobacco and exposure to asbestos. For synergistic essentially means a love of between two substances that make the health effect twice as uh, 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 injurious. For example, if you smoke cigarettes and you are exposed to asbestos, you have a 50% increased risk Mm -hmm. of contracting cancer. Interesting. So so were the early cases that you worked on asbestos cases? Yes, they were, and that was simply because I happened to be in the right place at the right time. But asbestos cases were born out of a long history that started 
in the 1800s, and essentially toxic torts are the the result of industrialization. In fact, the first nuisance case ever filed, I always thought this was so funny, the first nuisance case that was ever filed, uh, it was in the 1830s, and involved a neighbor who couldn't put up with his neighbor's pigsty. And environmental and toxic tort cases essentially flow out of what essentially were known as nuisances, that, they, that nuisances were created to the point that it impacted your neighbor. And toxic hmm. tort is just, is just you know, a, a bigger picture of, you know, it has a wider impact. For example, exposure to a toxic substance can impact hundreds of people, and there are plenty of examples of that. And uh, so that's – I always thought it was interesting that we started with a pig farm. And that is. <laughs> well, particularly with your analogy about pigs that yes. you start out with. Okay. I know. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Okay. So, um, so if I bought a piece of property that was contaminated – and I knew nothing about it. Am I liable? Well, that's really one of the more interesting aspects of uh, environmental and, and toxic tort. Both of them are what is known as joint and several liability. And what that means is, is that anybody, any individual, any corporation that had contact with a piece of property is liable. And typically in environmental cases, what happens is that the current landowner – is notified by whichever um, agency it can be federal or it can be state, and advises them that their that their property is contaminated, and not only is it probably contaminated, but the contamination flows to air, water, anything that the public could be exposed to, and so the current property owner bears the brunt of the burden and there's no and the property owner's burden of proof essentially goes to establishing who or what entity may have actually contributed to the cause of the contamination. So when you buy property, um, you really need to do your due diligence and figure out where and how um, a property was contaminated. One of my favorite stories is um, a case that involved uh, underground contamination by a company that went around and picked up recycled oil in the early 70s and then just dumped the used oil on, on in pits. And these were just open pits with nothing underneath it to protect the uh, groundwater. Mm. And the current owner of the property in this one particular case I'm thinking about totally freaked out when he received the notice of contamination. So he went down to Skid Row in a major metropolitan area and uh, found somebody to give him a dollar for the property and transferred title of the property <laughs> to some poor Skid Row guy who had no no better idea of what he was getting involved with for a dollar. But in that scenario, the 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 former owner who sold the property for a dollar <laughs> was still on the hooks because that's part of environmental and toxic tort litigation and, and investigations is going back and essentially developing what we call a site history, who owned the property and what kinds of processes were involved mm -hmm. in any kind of industrial development or work. And that's what I do for a living. So once you're notified, unless you take some kind of positive action, then you become, uh, then you're negligent. Well, is that, that right? is... 
that is well that is the the actually negligence in terms of uh environmental cases doesn't necessarily play much of a role in the sense that you're on the hooks whether you were negligent in the uh con- in contributing to the contamination of the site but essentially what this was this this whole theory of joint and several liability evolved out of an attempt by government agencies to respond to some pretty egregious contamination problems in the country and the only way they they, they could get anyone's the you know by going after the current property owner you at least have one uh well they in environmental cases they're called potentially responsible parties and in tort cases they're called uh defendants or potential defendants mm-hmm. and it doesn't and so what what essentially an environmental or toxic tort investigation involves is determining what we call apportionment of liability that is going back through the course of the history of the site and determining who actually did who was negligent actually and but percentages that, but, are a, a, but a right line? in ter- in trying to determine, but that's usually done within the core group of individuals named in the action. They attempt to put a settlement together, and that's really the next wave of uh, uh, in the environmental uh, litigation and toxic tort litigation. It's one thing, and I'm and you probably know this from your own work. It's one thing to get a judgment entered. Mm-hmm. against an individual it's totally another matter to collect on it and that is the issue in fact i think one of the biggest complaints probably over, the, over epa actions is that they've done all this work to identify what they call superfund sites but they have and they spent a small fortune in in determining who was contributing to that site but what's if a, a com- what's a ahead. superfund site a Superfund site is essentially a site that has been determined on by certain criteria established by the EPA to pose such an egregious health risk to the community that the EPA steps in to mediate it and then attempts to collect. Hmm. And that's also part of the uh, environmental investigations is to, is to determine and locate the funding and or insurance policies. For companies way back, for example, uh, companies that had general business liability policies in the 40s and the 50s can be on the hooks for, can be held liable for any finding against a company they insured that may not even be in business any longer. So, for example, if Company X owned a property and, and, and say it was a smelter and that the byproducts from the smelter contaminated both the air and the groundwater, and they were attempting to go after it. That's how it would work. Okay. Hold that thought. We need to take a quick break. Okay. Private investigator Nancy Barber, and I'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. Voiceamerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? 
ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today, private investigator Nancy Barber, is talking about toxic tort and environmental investigations. Nancy, you had a a case you wanted to talk about. Well, what I was going to talk about was the history of how uh, the general population has regarded toxic substances and how it's evolved from a rather comparative indifference to what can best be described as a collective celebration and pervasive suspicion. Essentially, most industrial uh, processes, in fact, almost everything we do in life has a byproduct that impacts the environment. Even True. when you cook up a meal, you you know how what it costs to get that meal to you, what what waste were generated in the production of fruits and vegetables to get that, how much 
pollution went to the air to transport. If you get the idea, there's a cradle-to-grave component in almost anything a human being does that negatively impacts the environment. And everything we use in our lives, everything from our computers to the cars that we drive, generate an environmental cost. And it, in the, at the turn of the century, the way of thinking about the environmental waste was that it was uh, just considered part of the past, gone, dead, and buried. And in the early or in the late 1970s, there was something called Love Canal. The irony of, of the name of this just totally escapes me. But it involved a chemical company in western New York, very near Niagara Falls. They had buried uh, containers of byproduct waste from its production for, from since maybe like the turn of the century. I don't hmm. recall exactly how long it had been there. But all of us and then the same chemical company, and this is sort of analogous to to the poor guy on Skid Row for a dollar buying one of the most contaminated sites in California. This chemical company donated the land where it had buried this waste to a school. And then the land was developed with uh, families building homes around the school. The school was a magnet to build to, for builders to build there. Mm-hmm. In the 1950s, with the after the post-war uh, development of land in that area and in the late 1970s lo and behold these substances started perking up and people had pools of toxic waste in their backyards in Mm. addition to that the families were starting to experience a cohort of odd and unusual health problems ranging from leukemia to skin rashes but the thing about uh, toxic substances and the exposure to them is that medicine is free Frequently, very far behind diagnosing what is causing the problem. A good example of this is that uh, uh, mesothelioma, which is one of the uh, cancers uh, caused by asbestos, was not fully understood or diagnosed till 1962. People were dying of mesothelioma for decades before that, but it was never di- it was never understood fully. And medicine is always playing catch up with understanding uh, environmental health problems. And uh, so by the, by the 1970s, there was a, there was a you know, a, a beginning to understand that, these, that, these, that the byproducts of our production process were going to kill us. Another good example of this is even in the 1920s, auto manufacturers wanted to introduce lead into gasoline to boost octane and use it as an anti-knock agent. Well, some scientists complained that there was a potential hand hazard industry, and this is where you see a big change from to, from from in the last 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. Industry said there was no evidence proving any harm. This is sort of analogous to the breast implant cases. And basically, what industry would do is wait until it, it might show up. It wasn't until 1973 that the hazardous effects of lead contamination in the air, ground, and soil caused any agency to ban the use of lead and gas. You know, uh, it, it, in fact, the manufacturing facilities where lead was produced was referred to as butterfly factories because of the hallucinations brought on by lead poisoning for wow. the lead. And it's and asbestos was referred to as the miracle mineral when it was first used. Mm-hmm. So the praises of these these substances in industry 
Sure. We're, we're not considered until um, a book was written by a woman. And if anybody's interested in the history of environmental litigation or just the environment in general, a really good starting point is a woman by the name of Rachel Carson wrote a book called Silent Spring. And one of the things that she talks about is in 1948, Life magazine depicted a bathing suit clad young woman munching a hot dog and smiling while standing in the middle of a DTT cloud. It's, it's amazing that, that <laughs> I know, but, it, but if you go back through trade literature from that period, Industry, the, the industry and the government had a laissez-faire approach to what could possibly be toxic to someone. I mean, but and, and if you look at it now, it's amazing that the general population looks at something with suspicion all of the time now. I don't know if we found a balance in that or not, but you know, it's it, the cost. I don't know if we if industry has found the balance in protecting the environment and protecting the population. But the biggest problem, as I mentioned previously, is that medicine doesn't always have the answers to what the health risks are. And back to that, when you were talking about when we were talking on the break about the Love Canal situation, you weren't even in the private investigation field. You were working at a hospital. Yes, I was working for, I was working as a translator for uh, Buffalo Children's Hospital and uh, I was called in to do an interview uh, for one of the uh, families who only spoke Spanish and they were trying to figure out why this little boy had these very curious rashes. So at the time I wasn't even thinking about, I mean, I was thinking about the environment, but not in the way that we, we think about it now. There has been a huge shift in how people look at products and what they use. And I think it's a good thing. I mean, it, it, but, you know, it, we were so clueless that it didn't even occur to us when we were doing the interview. We were looking at the clinical symptoms that the little boy had and never considered any environmental causes. We were looking at like leukemia. We were looking at all these, all these possible contributing factors in the family history but when it finally evolved it was it was months before anybody started asking those questions and do you think that has changed now or do you think that that still exists i i think in the united states we see it I don't know, for example, I know I have a really good friend from Canada and I was talking to him about how Canada handles its environmental problems and he laughed. He said, Oh, Canada's so big. If we get in, if we have a problem, we just go to another site. And I think, and I, <laughs> well, that's and, what we used to do here too. <laughs> but that's, but that's what I'm saying. And a lot of, and I know that a lot of the, for example, the production of asbestos containing products in the United States has fallen off. But the, I th- my personal opinion, and I don't know if people in the field would agree with me, is that the decline in the use and production of asbestos has less to do with government controls than the role of litigation in forcing manufacturers, uh, distributors, generators, transporters to consider the, the health risk. But on the other hand, um, for example, if you look at India and China, which are booming industry, they're the two coming up uh, industri- industrial societies, what is, if you go to China, what is the air quality like? 
Mm-hmm. Do they, you know, that is the price that they pay. In fact, you and I will recall that we were in Hong Kong and took right. a, took a little uh, side trip to one of the nearest towns, that, cities that had been built in China in the last 10 years. And we crested this hill and we mm-hmm. couldn't see the town because right. of the air quality. And our guide said to us, well, if you could see, that's <laughs> right. where the new city would be. But the, but, but I found the air quality overwhelming. From coming it was from amazing. The United, yeah, from the United States. Yeah, and this, and I'm not, I'm not saying that. Chi- and China and India are now facing industrialization processes with the knowledge of the environmental impact, and and what is going to be the cost of industrialization. Mm-hmm. And they can, and India and China can point to the United States or England or any of the other industrialized countries and said, "Oh well, you did it. Why can't we do it?" Sure. You know, they, they have, they have a population to feed and they, and they want to compete in the world. And how do you do that and still keep the environment intact for the next generation? That's very true. So was, uh, you and I talked briefly about the John Mansfield case regarding the asbestos litigation. Was that the largest, um, toxic tort case? Well, John, in, in, in talking about the Johns Manville case, it has several components, and, and it goes to essentially Johns Manville was probably one of the largest and most well-known manufacturers of asbestos-containing products, and and uh, Johns Manville has a, an interesting history because they were the lead, what we call the lead defendant, and they have they were the leader in how asbestos litigation evolved. And when, at one point, uh, you can just see that by, I think that the first, they, let's back up a little bit and talk about Johns Manville. They're a very interesting company. But they, uh, have been in business since the turn of the century, a, a lead, a leader, a leader in the industry. And, um, they, uh, had a, they, the reason they got into so much trouble is they had a lab that was called the Saranac Lab, and they just uh, that they were not certain what was causing asbestos-related problems. There, in in asbestos, most of the illnesses were first manifested in the miners, and it was just assumed that the miners had black lung or all miners had respiratory diseases because Johns Manville not only produced products but had um, asbestos mines. So by by most of the cases that you saw coming against Johns Manville were uh, what was known as workers' compensation. Yeah. But Nancy, the, let's 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 break right here and take a, a short break. Um, oh sure. Because this is getting into a little bit more topic. So oh, more sorry. more about investigating our environment in just a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. 
For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Nancy Barber is a licensed private investigator who specializes in ferreting out details to support legal findings on environmental cases. Nancy, you were just talking about the um, almost infamous at this point Johns Manfield case. Go ahead with what you were saying about the workers' comp. Okay. Well, back in the 30s, the only only recourse the workers had, and this is really important to distinguish because anybody exposed to asbestos-containing products had no one to go after. It was just anybody who worked for the for the production process of asbestos-containing products. And uh, it took from the 30s until 1959 to get to what they call uh, third party cases, which means third party essentially means you have the worker, you have the, the company, and then you have the third party. The third party is that individual who was injured. So what, in 1959, there was a change in, in, in the course of prosecuting against Johns Manville, and it came up to what's called consumer expectation. And what that means essentially is, is that when you buy a product or an apple, or anything. You don't expect it to harm you. In other words, the, mm-hmm. the consumer expects when you buy something, it's not going to injure you or kill you. By 1959, this component of uh, liability theory was filed against Johns Manville in 1959. It took from 1959 till 1966 for wow. that to proceed. And in 1969, there was a case filed where they actually were successful in prosecuting that theory. So what you have is uh, a really interesting jump. By 1978, there were 792 claims against Johns Manville. By 1982, they were named in 16,000 cases. Amazing. So when you say the Johns Manville case, that, that encompasses a history 
from the 30s where they were just treating these as worker comp to these 16,000 cases. And the, the bulk of the cases came out of World War II. The use of asbestos insulation in the shipyards, it, it was actually, asbestos was considered a product that was put on the government list of, pro, of components that only certain manufacturers could get. There were huge shortages. The war effort was on. And many people look upon the health uh, impact that the workers in the shipyard suffered as war injuries. That that was one of the theories. Is that hmm. well, that that was a byproduct of the of of the war. Is that there was going to be industrial disease, and there was very little in way of uh, protection during. War. In, in fact, there was no safe. They call them TLV, threshold level values. There was no safe t- TLV level even put out by the Navy. Until 1969, and in, within an intervene, or not, I'm sorry, not 1969, 1979. So you see how long it takes for mm-hmm. any product that may be a hazard to be considered, um, you know, removed from the market. But by, by 1982, Johns Manville did what, took the lead in what many manufacturers have done and filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And they argued a novel theory that if they continue making payments in litigation to asbestos litigants, they would be bankrupt. That, in addition to that, in 1985, the, gov- the Johns Manville took the leadership in another action, which I did actually work on. It was in the Court of Claims, and it was against the federal government. And it was essentially an effort to pursue the government on the theory of liability since the U.S. naval specifications required the use of asbestos and insulation during World War II that Johns Manville should be shielded from these lawsuits. They lost in that effort because essentially the U.S. government has succeeded in shielding itself from liability in any of these kinds of environmental cases. So the federal government's completely completely immune. Well, they, it's an it's an odd and it's very it's incredibly ironic that the federal government, through the EPA and its agencies, will name a landowner and ask them and for liability. And at the end of the day, frequently government operations through the Navy, the uh, Air Force, um, are are essentially the most significant contributors hmm. to the contamination. I find it very ironic when I work on those kinds of cases. Interesting. Yeah. So the landowner and all the history of landowners are responsible or, or products are responsible, but the federal government who was intricately involved is not. Well, they don't, they are, but in terms of going after the cleanup, the, essentially the government does bear the cost because they do go, they, you know, the cost of going after all these companies and see, and, and anybody landowners, you know, because in the environmental cases, it's anybody from the generator, even the people who tran, even the truckers, the trucking companies. Hmm. can be involved and in fact that was one of the we just talked about that uh, oil uh, waste case and that involved going after the truckers and tracking them down interesting and so the purpose for that was for the liability of the trucking company or or as the truckers well, as wait, what the, the, well that was actually one of the more far-flung cases i ever worked on in the state of california was this case where the it started in the, it was it seemed like such a good idea in the 1970s there was a gas shortage an oil shortage mm-hmm. under Jimmy Carter. I, we kind of all laugh about it now when we think about what the price of gas was then. But um, and what happened was is they the the these this company went around and collected waste oil from all these gas stations and from 
even like uh, PG&E, all the all the companies that generated wa- uh, oil waste, and they dumped it into a pit. And when I first got this case, I couldn't. They, what they wanted me to do was to track down, and and this is uh, from the 70s, and this case was filed what 10 years ago, and so I've got a 40-year lag to track down anybody who worked as a trucker. Who could identify every single individual company or individual business where they picked up waste oil? Because every single one of those companies or individuals that generated the waste oil were considered potentially responsible parties to pay and pick up for the waste oil. And one of the most amazing things happened to me in my entire working career was, and it was one of my first environmental cases, was that uh, within I had to track down truckers and I found this gentleman who was absolutely one of the most articulate, intelligent, and cogent witnesses I'd ever dealt with. And he's one of those guys that came up through the 30s and the Depression. He he didn't have many opportunities in life, and he ended up having to drive waste oil trucks for a living. But he would be bored every day because he was bright and, and sat around while the oil was, tra- was you know, transported from the ground or conveyed from the ground or the underground storage tank to his truck. So he would write out a log every single day. He kept like a diary, hmm. a little travel log <laughs> of the people he talked to, what he did that day, what thoughts he had. But he listed the address and the name of every individual he spoke to. And son of a gun, 30, 40 years later, I call him. And he said, well, it's interesting. He said, I don't know if you want to rely on my memory or my travel logs. <laughs> You must have thought you hit gold. I fell off my chair. I fell off my chair. I could not believe it. And it, it really was a huge, it moved the case down. I mean, we, we went from having maybe 10 PRPs, potentially responsible parties, to hundreds, hundreds, ranging from the Navy, PG&E. So we had active contributing parties that we could go after to clean up these sites. But it was it was just this guy, these witnesses. I love talking to these witnesses because these people have a story to tell. And frequently because they work in an industrial process or in an environment that most people wouldn't be interested, they are a big they're a big part of our environmental history. Interesting. Interesting. You know, that that's an investigator's dream is to find something like that. Well, you only get it once every two decades. Yes. Right. <laughs> I'm, here to, I'm here to testify. <laughs> well, was that, would you say that's your most interesting case or have you had others that you would say are more interesting than that one? Well, it's hard to say what's interesting. What I find, what makes my cases interesting to me are the people that I talk to. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they are, uh, and and some of them are just so sweet. They just, I'm, in fact, one of the first gentlemen I ever interviewed in 1985 was a guy who served in the Navy, and he was so taken with what I was trying to do that um, he kept in touch by sending me a Christmas card every year for a decade. Hmm. Until the poor man died, but I, I, I kind of miss his Christmas cards. But everybody laughed, and I said, because you know what, these people have a story to tell, and the fact that we find it interesting and that they can contribute something, you know, that their role in what happened thirty or forty years ago plays significantly in how we resolve an environmental problem or somebody suffering from health problems or something like that. It's, it's, you know, I find it fascinating. Have you found, Nancy, that? People were ha, had gathered this data and were really just waiting to tell their story. 
In some respects, you know, in fact, the trucker I'm thinking of uh, said, I knew someday somebody might care about what I did. Interesting. You know, and, 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 uh, the thing of it is, is one of the things that is, uh, and I'm, I've also worked on elder abuse cases, but I'm, 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 I'm very taken with the process of aging and how people, you know, people lead a life and, 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 and you, we watch television and we watch movies and we try to relate to what we see on the screen every day. And is that really our world? And, and so that what these people find is that someone takes an interest in them. Mm-hmm. You know, someone cares about what they did in their prior life. And for example, they, I will interview people that worked in, in the most, I don't even know how to describe it, really, really nasty, ugly working environments. You know, the hulls of ships crawling around through, uh, very tight chambers that no one could possibly imagine. Very dirty, nasty work. And that something, and that some, their role in, in telling the story, you know, I've spoken to people said, you know, I was wondering about that. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the, it's like the people who worked in the lead factories who had hallucinations. That was considered just part of the job. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. And so when you do these investigations, you start out by trying to gather as many documents as you can. Well, we call it we call it essentially like cradle to grave. You want to know where what exactly happened at the very you know from you pick any site any site you want. I mean, we could pick a shipyard. How do how did that shipyard evolve? Where, you know what was it? What what operation? Typically, what's really interesting is industrial sites are. If you look at how we classify land when we buy it, you know it's either residential land or it's industrial land or it's agricultural land. And even in fact, people don't think oh. If I buy a, a piece of land and it's agricultural, you might want to think about what that what was used on that land during the use of uh, during the they were growing crops and they were using mm-hmm. you know, some kind of uh, PCBs or they were using some kind of uh, some you know pesticides something like that. People just don't think and, and you you have all these processes buried in the history of a site. And what you might find very interesting is that you're looking at something you think oh that must have happened in the 40s and it could have actually happened at the turn of the century. So what we do is we trace the entire history of that site and that generally begins with finding title documents, who owned the property. And then the other uh then what you try to do is figure out um how how what that land was used for and that comes to you know there's an amazing one of the things that's very amazing about the work I do is that infrequently am I going to find the information I need on computers or right. on the internet <laughs> right. I it, it, the, you can always tell when someone is new to this litigation because they think well do you just tap a few keys and you right. find it on the internet and I'm thinking yeah well that might be right but I don't think so yeah. most of the records from the turn of the century until about the what when we start computers about mid 80s yeah those kinds of records just aren't online and the other thing that's really amazing to me is that there are resources like historical telephone directories that list um what if you go to the back and you look at the reverse listing for the property they identify the name of the company and then you turn to the page in the front and it lists all the people that work for that company just in a it's just in an old phone book in an old phone book you can pretty much that's a big secret (laughs) we need to take another break stay tuned with nancy barber we'll be returning in just a couple moments 
news. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to PI's Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're back with private investigator Nancy Barber, who's been providing us with a bird's-eye view of toxic tort investigations. Nancy, you wanted to talk a little bit about what if people had their own situation, what they should do about it. I would. Um, I think that a lot of people feel overwhelmed. I, I, for example, if you look at all the environmental laws that are in place, it is a, it is a potpourri of alphabet soup from CERCLA to Superfund to CERA, and it can be pretty overwhelming. But I don't, I don't, I think I want to leave people with one, one thought is that, you know, the think globally, act locally. I had a case that I worked on that was essentially a pro bono case that just came out of my taking my dog for a walk at a park one day and essentially what had happened is that the uh, federal government had decided to close off certain areas of the park for public use in an, in an attempt to establish an environmental habitat zone. That was all fine, well and good except for one thing. They failed to give public notice to the public as required by law and so we were this, we were just a group of people using a, a, a national a nationally held park park. 
but we felt that we were we were being we were not we were being excluded from the process and how the public land should be used and that is something that's very uh very very uh Contentious in the even in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, how open space is used and and how we have access to it, and what what right does the public have to say? And in this particular case, what was was, was fascinating is that a very small ragtag army of people put together a case and filed a temporary restraining order against the National Park Service, and we did this all by selling T-shirts cookies. We had no funding whatsoever. At one point, the federal government dropped more than 50 boxes of documents on us. And one of the things that came out of this experience was, and I, even in my own business, I never really thought about the role of a scientific opinion and its validity and acceptance within the scientific community. And I think you probably see this in all kinds of investigations. And we mm-hmm. have something called the, I don't know if I've ever pronounced this right, Dalbert ruling, where you have to balance the, the scientific opinion mm-hmm. is something that's accepted within uh, the general scientific population at that moment. And so we were faced with doing that. And it, it was a very interesting case in that we actually won the case. It was the most, I, I still to this day am in, in awe and shock that we managed to get that far with it. But what we were able to say is as a community, we have a voice and mm-hmm. we will be heard. Now, you don't, I'm not suggesting that you necessarily have to uh, file a temporary restraining order against the federal government. I don't recommend that because that took three months out of my life that I had nothing else to do but that. But what I'm saying is, is that when you buy a product, when you want something to do, when you want to clean your sink, when you want to, you know, wash your car, when you do anything, think about what you're doing. If, you know, that you are leaving some, you are generating an environmental waste. Mm-hmm. And if you, and for example, these days people complain about the price of batteries for their cars, but now when you buy a battery, not only are you paying for the production of that battery, but you're paying for the disposal, the proper disposal of its waste. And people are going to have to start thinking about that when they start using products of any type. That when you use something, what is the environmental cost? And are you willing to pay the environmental cost for using that product? Well, a perfect example of that is printer cartridges. There you go. That's something we use, all of us probably today use printer cartridges in our in our printers that are associated with our computers and there's a there's a way to dispose of them by taking them back to where you bought them in all kinds of ways that's certainly true and and the other thing too is you have to and when you use those cartridges it's so easy to just toss it in the garbage can but you really don't want to do that i think san francisco has taken the lead in many respects or even in Cal- i will say this about california one of the reasons it's it's great to be in california besides the fact that it doesn't snow like it does in buffalo New York, but that California takes the lead. One of the most amazing things about California is our agencies, the health departments, are far more aggressive and assertive above and beyond what federal standards require. Mm-hmm. So you're saying, Nancy, that one person or a few people like your 
your people on the park can really make a difference. If you don't file a restraining order, you can always go to city council. There's other, uh, there's, there's many, many forms, and don't give up on it. There's always a way. In San Francisco, for example, the San Francisco Rec and Park has something called the – it's called Prozac. I'm trying to remember what the acronym stands for. <laughs> and I used to sit on that. It's a Park Recreation Open Space Advisory Committee. You can go and you can make your voice heard. And I think that one of the things that we're going to be facing in the future – that all of us need to think about in this economic environment is the press for privatization by government to various, uh, for example, San Francisco Rec and Park wants to privatize a lot of its services, but you lose a certain amount of accountability. Mm-hmm. In, and I'm not saying, I'm, not, I'm only using Rec and Park as an example. You could pick any agency you in could. any city. But what I'm trying to point out is, is if we go with privatization, the accountability for the environmental consequences, I believe, will diminish. I think that's a very good point. But the, but the point that you really want to emphasize is that each person can make a difference if they have a, an issue. Absolutely. And, you don't have to be a hippie from the 60s to believe that. I see it every single day. And, and look at what happened with, even in asbestos cases. It was just a couple of attorneys on the plaintiff's bar you know, constantly, constantly going after, you know, trying to defend these poor people who suffered such consequences. Well, and you know, I, I'm sure you knew about the program that where, uh, Carol Moore, who, uh, worked on the DuPont right. case out of West I'm very Virginia. very familiar with that. Carol's and, a great gal. Yeah, and, and that came about because just a regular resident saw people in hazmat clothing, uh, taking soil samples and questioned it and called a law firm. Yep. So be aware. Be aware yep. of your environment. Be aware of what's going on around you and question it because it may not be exactly what it appears. Exactly. Or what you're told. Right. Because <laughs> I think she was just told that they were just checking the soil samples. That would be why they were wearing the hazmat suits. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That would be a clue. That would, so, by the way, that would be your first clue if you ever see that. <laughs> right. So, Nancy, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're so much fun to talk to. Well, it was an, I enjoyed it myself. And uh, let me just talk real briefly about today's sponsor uh, for today is Merlin Information Services. They provide proprietary data research to private investigators and related industries. My guests in the next upcoming few weeks are private investigator Alan Cardoza, attorney James Burke, death row exoneree Jeremy Sheets, and private investigator Jennifer, Jennifer Maganay. So, again, tune in next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.